Welcome to the Out of the Shadows podcast. In this episode, we welcome Dov Levin. Dov is Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Hong Kong. He is also the author of the book Meddling in the Ballot Box, The Causes and Effects of Partisan Electoral Intervention. This exceptional book is published by Oxford University Press. In the episode, we discuss how Dov became interested in the topic, what is partisan electoral intervention and under what circumstances great powers engage in it, We also discussed the consequences and a few examples of partisan electoral intervention. And finally, we conclude with a discussion on the 2016 U.S. elections and of Russian interference and its effects on U.S. politics. Uh, okay, Dov, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for joining us and for joining our podcast. Uh, as I mentioned in our introduction, you've written quite an exceptional book on electoral interference which is titled Meddling in the Ballot Box, The Causes and Effects of Partisan Electoral Interventions, and is published by uh, Oxford University Press. So I guess my first question is, how did you become interested in this topic of electoral interference? Well, it was sheer coincidence. I was a PhD student at UCLA um, sometime uh, early in the previous decade. And I was looking for a new uh, dissertation topic after my two previous ones did not work out for various reasons. And because, you know, I'm a history buff, you know, uh, I am this type of person who likes to read a lot of history of all kinds. Uh, I went to, you know, to the main UCLA library and was looking for something to read in my spare time. And by sheer chance, they had a new book on the shelf, you know, on the new Alesis section about Italy in the late 1940s, hmm. which prominently discussed one such case of such intervention uh, by the United States and Russia, you know, the 1948 uh, uh, Italian elections. So, you know, I read that book and I said to myself, oh, this really looks like an interesting topic for a PhD dissertation. Now, of course, you know, I was worried, you know, and usually my, it's usually we know that, you know, if something is an interesting topic, there must be many other pieces of research on it. So, you know, I'm going scared into Google and to other search engines and, you know, Googling in keywords and saying to myself, okay, I'm now going to find, you know, dozens of other pieces on it, so to speak. Um, and I checked and I didn't find any, you know, I go search engine after search and I don't find any. So then I say, wow, I must have found something good. But, you know, I have to ask my advisor and, think, and see if they think that this is indeed a good research topic or, you know, I'm missing here some kind of, you know, underground mind that prevented other people from studying it. Or, you know, maybe he found some, or he knows about past research on it. So then I go to him and he says to me, oh, that's actually a great topic. I don't think there was actually anything done on it almost. Uh, you should try to write your proposal on it. And that's uh, how I uh, launched my research and discovered uh, this topic, so to speak. Oh, that's great. I'm very, <laughs> very glad that there is an Italian connection. And of course, we, we might come back to the uh, 48 elections later uh, in our discussion. Uh, at the center of the book, you put what you call partisan electoral interventions. And you spend 
quite a few pages in the book detailing exactly what these means and how it is, how this practice is different from other forms of interventions which could be um, more aggressive or less aggressive. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about how you define partisan electoral interventions, what they are? Sure. Um, I define a partisan electoral intervention as a situation in which a sovereign country intentionally intervenes in a costly manner before an election in another sovereign country in order to favor or hurt one of the sides contesting that election. And the key message, you know, includes things like, for example, campaign funding, you know, uh, giving, you know, money to that particular side for its campaign. It can include things like what I call uh, dirty tricks, like, you know, spreading fake news, quote unquote, on the unwanted side, or leaking, for example, embarrassing to information on them, or, you know, trying to split the party that you don't want to win. It can also include things like, you know, public and specific threats or promises, you know, where before the election, making a threat a few days before, and if you vote for X, you will suffer, or, you know, if you vote for X, you will, you know, gain, you know, increases in foreign aid. It can also mean things like, for example, campaigning assistance, you know, sending experts in campaigning to, you know, give advice on how to run the campaign, campaigning techniques, polling, and things like that. And it can also include things like, for example, you know, giving or taking aid shortly before the election or other non-material concessions of various kinds. And then, and basically, um, the, there are multiple differences between this method of intervention and other methods. For example, unlike other kinds of covert regime change operations, such meddling is focused on affecting election results. So only countries with relatively uh, competitive elections could be, you know, targets of it. And likewise, when it's successful, it usually leads to a regular change in power, not an irregular one like in those covert uh, regime change operations. It is also usually, as you could see here from the main message, usually nonviolent and cheaper by an order of magnitude. Um, and, you know, and it also it's different from, you know, things like, for example, election observation, because, you know, these things are uh, not, are meant to be, uh, this type of intervention is meant to be intentionally partisan. While um, election observation and many forms of democracy aid are meant to be nonpartisan, so to speak. So this is how I define it, and that's the difference between it and other common methods of intervention. I mean, that is very interesting, and I think you, you established a clear connection there with with regime change, which of course is extremely controversial. Uh, but electoral intervention still seems to me a, a, a controversial practice and one that has uh, potential costs if it's covert in case it is exposed or if it is open, uh, it might have uh, electoral costs for the party that is being supported. So uh, under in what cases, under what circumstances do we see uh, electoral intervention happening? Um, yeah, no, I agree with you completely. There are, of course, costs, and it's, of course, quite controversial, even if you know it doesn't involve anyone being killed, usually. Um, and I would basically argue, and I basically argue that uh, such interventions usually occur under, you know, two major conditions. The first is, you know, that the great power sees one of the sides uh, 
um, in, um, you know, uh, in, in being, that's about to compete in an election, being greatly, in, to, to being, you know, greatly threatening its interests. How? Because, you know, it, can, it has, you know, inflexible preferences and important issues to the great power that diverge from it. You know, it doesn't like the idea of being allied with, the, with that great power. It opposes, you know, a military base. It has, you know, some domestic pol it supports some domestic policies that harm the great power or various things like that. And basically, these type of inflexible preferences are usually, you know, due to that candidate or party, either, you know, being true believers, you know, they deeply believe those policies and would not be willing, you know, to change them easily. You know, it's like, you know, like someone who's a, a you know, you know, like a person who is a devout uh, Muslim or Christian, you know, changing mm -hmm. their mind about their religion, or, you know, they are greatly constrained by their political base on these issues. And that, you know, would make in many of those conventional po policy responses, you know, various types of carrots and sticks, um, you know, um, appear potentially ineffective or too costly for the great power. So that is one condition, you know, that the foreign power sees an upcoming election in, an, in another country and says, oh, my God, if those people win or if those people stay in power, I'm in trouble. I'm going to suffer. We cannot permit it. And the second more important condition, according to my argument, is that basically there's another um, significant domestic actor within, the, within that country that wants or, you know, is willing to be assisted by the foreign power in this uh, risky manner. You know, what we know today um, colloquially as collude with it. And the basic reason why is, you know, that partisan electoral interventions, unlike, you know, other types of interference, are usually inside jobs. And that is basically due to the fact that an electoral intervention is basically an attempt, you know, to strengthen or, you know, to create a domestic election campaign for a particular party or, you know, for a particular candidate in that target. So, you know, if you want to really, you know, um, aid or create an election campaign for another, for, for a candidate or party in another country, the would-be intervener needs, you know, the same type of information or what you could call local knowledge that local actors have. You know, um, you know what are the electorate's preferences? You know, um, what, are, you know, um, will, you know, will it be better in order to get its support, you know, to say threaten before the election or, you know, give some aid before the election? Do, do, does the local actor need, say, more money in order to, you know, hang more posters? Or actually, they could use more training and, you know, running a more effective campaign. And basically, without this cooperation, you know, the chances of the great power succeeding are very low. And um, so as a result, um, if it doesn't uh, get, get such uh, acceptance, if the local actor is unwilling to support, to agree to such intervention, it is not likely to do it. But the local domestic actor is unwilling, is frequently unwilling to get such interference because such interference, as you noted, can have serious costs to it as well. You know, if it's public, you know, where many of its own voters may see it, quote unquote, as a stooge of the great power. And, you know, if it's secret, there's always the possibility of exposure, which can, you know, delegitimize its own election victory and, you know, or connect it to, you know, and, and deep states or things like that, so to speak. 
So as a result, usually um, I argue that such um, the domestic actors only ask or um, accept such interference when they are in deep political trouble. You know, um, either they are in power, but they, their chances of winning an election are expected to be really, really low, or that they um, basically um, are out of power and but and they they are and they're in a very weak political position or they are formally or informally blocked by uh, the government from actually winning power in practice so that would be the basic uh, circumstances under which a country becomes involved in such uh, meddling first it sees one of the candidates or parties in the target as a threat to its interests and having inflexible preferences on that issue and at the same time, another actor, domestic actor in the target is willing to accept such assistance. I mean, this is super interesting, especially the aspect of uh, this type of operations being an inside job. For example, if we look at Italy, of course, uh, the CIA and the United States could rely on an extensive network within the country uh, that knew precisely how to operate, where to send funds, which candidates to support in which particular constituencies. So I think I think that is a really interesting, a really interesting argument. And uh, of course, you mentioned that these are uh, in interventions that purely occur during elections. So of course, uh, the target country is necessarily democratic. Uh, but does it make a difference whether the intervening country is democratic or uh, authoritarian or totalitarian? For example, in your book, the most of the examples are on the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, is there any difference uh, in the in the style, perhaps, of intervention between these two types of country? Well, um, I, for my research, both in my book and in uh, later research, I don't see uh, what's name you call it in most cases uh, any big differences between them. You know, there's very similar reasons from what I could find from cases of such interference why they interfere both authoritarian and democratic countries interference in elections help frequently the assisted side you know to win the election you know um, what's the name you call it both likewise uh, both uh, interferences by you know by democratic and authoritarian countries tend to have various negative effects on uh, the that particular country's uh, long-term uh, welfare the only difference is that, that I could find so far is that democratic countries, or more specifically the United States, is better in gaining cooperation after a successful intervention, you know, in, in which they, you know, place in power or keep in power the side they actually wanted to win, than the Soviets or the Russians are. The United States was frequently able to gain, and this is what I find in an upcoming piece of mine, has been able to frequently gain uh, a certain increased amount of cooperation, while the Soviets or the Russians, even when they succeeded in you know, placing in power their preferred candidates, greatly failed in this regard. So, and with that special exception, in most, in most aspects, um, the fact whether it's the United States or the Soviet Union or Russia or any other authoritarian or democratic power does not uh, usually matter. Uh-huh. This connects very well to my to my next question, actually, because I was just going to ask, uh, what are the consequences of these of these interventions? Uh, do they actually work? And if they do, to what extent do they work? Under what conditions? 
Well, um, it depends on uh, whether we talk about the short or longer term and what criteria is the criteria we or the foreign power cares about. If the criteria is, you know, do you get the desired side in power and gain more cooperation? It does frequently work, you know. I find in my book, for example, Meddling in the Ballot Box, that it increases on average, that such interference increases on average um, the vote of the preferred side by 3%, which is frequently enough to determine actually who wins, you know, the election. And in many cases, the effect was even, you know, a larger uh, than that, so to speak. So frequently when you, if you are fine power and you intervene in this manner, you will actually gain, the, you will actually get the side you wanted to actually be in, stay in power or come to power through such meddling. Likewise, as I just mentioned in my previous question, in the, my previous answer, um, if you, the, you are the United States, for example, you frequently gain actually afterwards more cooperation from that, you know, actor you put in power. If, however, your criteria is, you know, the long-term welfare of the target, you know, um, which at least in public statements, the United States uh, usually loves to claim that it does this, you know, to spread freedom and other good stuff, then, you know, many times um, these things uh, have negative consequences and they are not very successful. You know, I find in some later pieces of mine that, for example, um, such interference, when it's done covertly and succeeds, increases the chances of a democratic breakdown in the target. Because, for example, that uh, frequently um, such interventions, when they're done covertly, bring to power corrupt and authoritarian-minded leaders, so to speak, who really don't care about democracy or, any, or even just want to undermine it. So frequently, no, um, such interventions, when they're done covertly, um, increase greatly the chances, I think, by two and a half to eight times of a democratic breakdown in the target. And likewise, I find that uh, when this stuff is done uh, overtly, or, you know, it's a covert intervention that is exposed, it significantly increases the amount of terrorism in the target, you know, um, by uh, increases, you know, the chances of a new terrorist group forming by about 10 and a half uh, percent. And the, pub, and the increases in domestic terrorism by about 150, domestic terrorist incidents by about 153%, uh, so to speak. So um, such, uh, so such um, interventions, from what I find, have multiple and significant consequences, so to speak. If you are a foreign power and all you care about is, I don't want those guys in, being in power and I want to get more cooperation, you will frequently gain that. If you actually, however, care about the welfare of that country, then such intervention should have for you, like, you know, one of those warning signs and cigarettes, you know, warning, these cigarettes are bad for this country's health or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that is interesting because could we perhaps argue that then maybe great powers uh, are only interested in having their, their preferred party in power? Because as you detailed in the book, these... These practices, these electoral interferences have been very frequent, uh, especially yeah. compared to other types of, uh, of covert intervention. I think you said one in nine, something along these lines, one in nine elections saw some interference from the United States or the Soviet Union. I mean, that's a lot. Yes, it's, it's a very common practice. I myself was surprised how common they were. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think we mentioned a couple of examples already. Uh, we mentioned Italy. Uh, could you discuss a couple of examples that you think are, like, I guess, typical of intervention, either in their success or in the trouble they encountered, uh, either that you discuss in your book or that you've been exploring uh, more generally? Yes. Um, well, one example was the American intervention in uh, Yugoslavia in the 2000 election there. Basically, the then leader of Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, was running for re-election, and the United States didn't want him to stay in power there due to his tendency, you know, to disrupt the Balkans and have uh, serious human rights violations. You know, he played a very active role, you know, in the civil war in Bosnia in the 19, uh, early 1990s, which led, you know, to uh, significant crimes against humanity. He then, you know, tried to do ethnic cleansings in Kosovo, which led, you know, to the Kosovo war to stop him from that. So he was basically destabilizing the whole Balkans and the United States wanted him, you know, to stop that and stop those uh, human rights violations. So the United States intervened in various ways for the opposition candidate, Vojislav Kustunica. Um, you know, um, like, for example, it gave them um, heavy training in, you know, various campaigning methods. You know, it, for example, trained 5,000 members of the Serbian opposition in, you know, advanced campaigning methods. And it also sent American campaign experts to help them, you know, design the campaign and, you know, um, polling to make sure that it's better. And it also, you know, for example, um, gave the campaign, you know, various campaigning materials. Like, for example, it gave them uh, stickers, you know, um, with various slogans, like, you know, he is finished in Serbian, which they were then sticking all around there. And likewise, one common technique of campaigning by the opposition in Serbia, because Slobodan Milosevic liked to, you know, harass the opposition in various ways and didn't let them, you know, hang their posters, was, you know, by spraying in graffiti their slogans. So the United States gave to the Serbian opposition um, 5,000 cans of uh, graffiti spray so they could spray their uh, campaign slogans on walls across, you know, Serbia. I, by the way, I pity the poor and unfortunate uh, house owners who were the, <laughs> who, who suffered, you know, that graffiti for this purpose. So, you know, and it also, you know, gave it a significant amount of campaign funding, you know, something like 20 to 30 million, according to one estimate I uh, I saw so to speak. And all of those things, including, you know, a, a, a threat, about, a, a promise about, I think, a week or two before the election uh, by the United States that if uh, Slobodan Milosevic uh, loses, um, you know, um, he the United States would uh, start removing all of those sanctions that imposed on Serbia, played, according to my analysis, a major role in Slobodan Milosevic's uh, defeat, you know. Um, Basically, you know, um, Serbia was at the time a competitive authoritarian state where uh, voters who were dead or, you know, um, additional votes suddenly were added in the last moment, so to speak. So um, without the American assistance to uh, Kustunica, it is very likely that he was been able, that uh, Milosevic would have been able, nevertheless, to win the election through various acts of fraud and the victory of the opposition would have not been uh, significant enough to lead, you know, to those mass post-election protests that led to Slobodan Milosevic's uh, downfall, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, so I estimate that, you know, basically uh, 
if it wasn't for the United States, uh, Slobodan Milosevic may not have uh, been, uh, may have won and continued to destabilize the Balkans into the early 2000s, so to speak. Um, so that is one example, which I think is a pretty good example of yeah. common uh, trends. Um, another okay. example, yeah. No, I mean, I was just uh, going to jump in quickly to suggest that it is very interesting to uh, see the continuities in techniques used in these electoral interferences. So uh, the campaign messaging, the use of, uh, you, you said, uh, spray spray cans and other uh, type of messaging like uh, stickers, and also the use of, to a certain extent, economic or financial threats. I mean, going back to the Italian case, I think, uh, we we see some similar dynamics. We see letter writing, we see posters, uh, we see radio campaigns, we see movies, and then we see the threat, uh, uh, economic and financial threats regarding the Marshall Plan and the withdrawal of the Marshall Plan. So I think there is an interesting element of continuity here in terms of what means are actually used to achieve these objectives. No, I completely agree. The means that they are using for this purpose, that foreign powers use in order to meddle in elections, tend to be, you know, they tend to, you know, customize them for any particular country, given, you know, its own specific needs. But the uh, general techniques are very old. Some of them go back 200 years and more, so to speak. Many of them are, you know, like what you mentioned about Italy. Italy in 1948 is frequently seen, was seen by the CIA and the United States as, you know, a model success case, you know, how we stopped Italy from going communist in 1948. Yes. So, quote unquote, so a lot of these techniques tend to be frequently reused over time as part of, you know, a menu of um, options that uh, the United States and other foreign powers have. And in that, the United States, by the way, is not unusual. We know that, for example, a lot of the techniques that Russia used in 2016 are basically, you know, digitalized version of the techniques it was using in many previous elections to interfere in the 70s and 80s. I mean, Vladimir Putin probably learned all of those techniques when he was in KGB school, so to speak. So um, basically, there's a whole menu of options that tend to be frequently reused based on the circumstances and the need of the local actor. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Russia just now, and, and I think it would be hard to discuss a book on electoral interference without uh, mentioning or discussing 2016. Uh, and something you said in the previous answer, I found quite interesting if we look at the recent developments in the United States. So earlier you mentioned that generally if there is a covert intervention uh, that favors a candidate with authoritarian tendencies, then it might lead to a breakdown in democracy. And you think, well, if we look at current events in the United States, one could argue that this is what happened after the 2016 election. Uh, but I guess jokes aside, um, how does uh, how do the findings uh, of your book, or what do the findings of your book tell us about the 2016 elections? Does it does it fit your model in a sense? Yeah, it largely fits my model. You know, in the case of the democratic breakdown thing, I am happy that it did not break down. But man, this was so close to what I was predicting. You know, uh, by the way, the research on that one was done in, in mid-2016 before Trump's victory, so to speak. Um, but about, you know, this case in general, I agree that, you know, it overall fits uh, 
my argument, I mean, in my book, you know, about why this stuff occurs and its effects on election results. I mean, uh, basically, uh, you know, we I find, uh, based upon, you know, experts on Russian foreign policy, they believe that the reason why Putin intervened wasn't in order, you know, to cause chaos or something like that, although I'm sure he's really been enjoying every last moment of the last few weeks, so to speak. It was a but, fantastic return on investment. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, I mean, while I'm sure he's enjoying the chaos, you know, um, I, the Russia, Russia experts believe that he did it because he was really, really scared of Hillary Clinton. In other words, you know, he was sure that if Hillary Clinton would come to power, she would start against him, you know, a new Cold War, you know, um, which the fact that Hillary Clinton called him at one point a Hitler probably helped scare him in this regard, so to speak, you know. Um, and uh, basically, um, he was really scared of Hillary, so he wanted to stop her at all costs. And he was hoping that if he could get Trump elected, he would, you know, get uh, get him to, you know, um, accept what he did in Crimea, get him to, you know, remove U.S. sanctions, which would lead them to EU sanctions and Russia also being removed. So um, that is why he probably intervened for Trump, so to speak, because of his deep fear of Hillary Clinton, you know, throwing at him everything, so to speak. And likewise, there is pretty strong evidence that there was, you know, collusion between the Trump administration and, sorry, between the Trump campaign and uh, Russia in 2016. I mean, uh, the amount of smoke and, and circumstantial evidence is simply overwhelming, and it's hard to find any other way to explain really the data, so to speak. I mean, if Tom's mother was still alive, she herself would probably believe that Tom colluded, so to speak. Um, so that's about the causes. It pretty fits pretty well. As for the effects, I also find, you know, that, such, that it did have a major effect, as I would predict, on the election results, increasing uh, Tom's voucher by 2% and giving him, you know, his electoral college victory in, you know, those key uh, swing states, so to speak. So both of those aspects, it fits. And likewise, um, there was nothing that was, there was very little that was special or unusual about this intervention in general. I mean, um, you know, it would fit exactly, you know, other types of interference like that in the past. As I mentioned, you know, it was a common tool by Russia. It was a type of in, the type of message that it used, as I mentioned, was used many times in the past in non-digital form. There was, a, there was, as I said, the collusion. And so, so basically, the only stuff that was unusual about it were, you know, the use of digital techniques, which was basically, you know, a digital form of, a, of older techniques, and the fact that it was rather shoddily done. You know, usually, uh, covert interventions are rarely exposed pre-election. And in the days of the KGB, they knew how to cover their tracks. But under Putin, you know, um, the GRU isn't what it used to be. So to paraphrase Watergate, it was, you know, a third-rate electoral meddling. So that is, so it overall, you know, fit my arguments and uh, fit my expectations of various, you know, uh, research I've done on this topic, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. I think it, it, this point about being done badly uh, connects to broader debate within uh, the covert action scholarship about uh, implausible deniability and all of these things. Was it done badly uh, because they're simply bad? Or was there an element of creating some implausible deniability around uh, around the operation? Uh, I think we're, we're, we're running towards the end 
uh, of our time. So first of all, thank you for for your discussion and for uh, chatting to us about uh, electoral intervention. As I said, your book is absolutely uh, fascinating from both a theoretical perspective and a historical and empirical one. Uh, but I tend to conclude an episode by asking uh, the guest if he can name uh, three books that are related to the topic that he would recommend to our listeners. So maybe, I guess you can recommend your book or books within within that area. Yeah, I, well, of course, as you could say, I'm recommending my book, Meddling in the Ballot Box, so to speak. Do buy it, you know, uh, if you haven't done it yet. Um, except for my book, of course, uh, I would recommend, you know, um, as for electoral intervention specifically, there's this really good book by Gustafsson called Hostile Intent, an American meddling in Chile in the 1960s. So that's, you know, more from my historical or intelligence studies perspective, but it's still a very good analysis of, you know, what the United States exactly, how it meddled exactly in Chile in various ways in the 1960s, including electorally. Um, other books I would recommend, you know, when one book is, uh, other books, you know, don't, you know, unlike my book, which focuses only on electoral interventions as its uh, main message, other books, you know, focus on other interventions as well, with electoral interventions just, you know, um, one type of uh, such a meddling. But um, so, but others who do discuss it in some serious manner that I would recommend would be like, for example, um, a book by Bubek and Manav called um, Rules and uh, Allies, so to speak. And uh, what's the name it called? So that would also be a pretty, you know, uh, good book worse, uh, for people who are interested in, in uh, such interference to check as well. It's it checks also, you know, um, non-partisan or neutral interventions together with, uh, with partisan ones. Uh, but it also discusses a bit, you know, uh, partisan interventions as well. Well, Dob Levin, thank you for uh, coming to our podcast and thank you for this very interesting discussion. And thank you very much for inviting me.